Welcome all you lovely people to the Hootenanny Brixton for the Yuletide edition of the Brixton Book Jam. Thank you, thank you. Okay, our aim tonight is to uh, curate the best of South London writing and have a lot of fun. We have a superb selection of writers for you here tonight, plus very talented musicians. My name is Christian Evans and I'll be your compere for this evening. And we're going to be having just over a dozen writers and book people, plus musicians up on stage. Each are given about five minutes to go through uh, either their latest works or talk about a book-related subject that interests them. The writers will be around in between the readings and during the interval to chat and answer any questions you may have about their books and writing. So, uh, without further ado, we're going to have John Michael O'Sullivan, who is a London-based writer and designer, a regular contributor to Esquire and The Observer. He also edits the menswear biannual article, a project which also started life on Unbound four years ago and is now on its 10th issue. His particular interest lies in mid-century fashion and photography. Since 2013, he has been working with Barbara Mullen, one of the top models of the post-war era, on a biography which explores fashion's golden age from the other side of the lens. So let's give a big hand for John Michael O'Sullivan. <laughs> this thing is movable. It's going to be a long night. Okay. Hello, everyone. I presume, can anyone hear me? I can do tiptoes. That's fine. Is that okay? Cool. So, okay. not that low. Okay. There we go. So, starting again. Um, so, I'm here tonight because four and a half years ago, um, I went to Switzerland to interview a woman called Barbara Mullen. Um, it was an assignment for the Observer magazine. Um, she was a very famous fashion model in the 1950s, and I wasn't desperately interested, but it was a free trip to Zurich, so, you know, why not? And I spent the day with her, and I came away really sort of stunned by kind of what I'd learned. Sorry, for the sake of the recording, could you speak into the mic? I can try. Thank you, Philip. Okay. So the two things that I really had from the day was I'd never understood how incredible New York was in the 1940s and 1950s. The best comparison I can make is if you think about London in the 60s, New York was in the middle of a giant post-war boom. It had an influx of refugees from Europe, from all over the world. It had a massive amount of returning GIs, and it really just had a huge amount of very young people starting something new. So in the worlds of fashion, in photography, in design, in publishing, there was just an amazing sort of perfect storm of people coming together and doing quite unique things. And the second thing I learned was that modeling was actually quite interesting. Um, and if any of you are like me, you've probably never given much thought to modeling, unless obviously many of you are, are probably trained models. But uh, it's, I think I just always assumed it was pretty girls standing in front of a camera, and that is technically what they do. But in that particular period, when modeling was really just starting, those women were inventing the profession. They didn't 
start life wanting to be models because modeling didn't exist. So they created this industry for good and for bad. They invented the shapes, they, they changed how we see our bodies, how we see our faces, how we define beauty. Um, and I think the sad thing is that no one's ever been very interested in those women. It's always been the great photographers, the great designers, the great publishers, but actually these women, because they weren't necessarily terribly well-educated or terribly well-connected or terribly important in any of the conventional senses, were always considered to be sort of pawns in the fashion game. So really my interest in working with Unbound is to give at least one of these women the chance to tell her story. So, um, I've written something. And so, when I wanted to understand what made Barbara Molden such an incredible model, and she really was quite outstanding, I kind of had to go back to the start. So, understanding Barbara and where she came from. So, this is about Barbara's mother. Isma, or Irma, or Isma, or Veronica, or Henrietta. Miss Isma Shirley, or Mrs. I.S. Mullen, or Mrs. Irma Mullins. That last version just once, in 1945, on the front of the Long Island Star Journal, under the headline, Woman Dies in Fire. Barbara Mullins' mother never stayed still enough for anyone, not even her daughter, to be sure about anything as simple as her name. She entered immigration records in 1922 as Irma Shirley, a 20-year-old st student who arrived alone on the passenger ship Cologne. After st stepping ashore at Ellis Island, she was cleared by the station's examiners and promptly disappeared. 18 years later, the record books tracked her down again, as Irma Mullen, a widowed dressmaker with two teenage daughters in a tiny second floor apartment in Queens. So where did she go in between and what did she do? Nothing that anyone seemed to think worth recording unless you count an apparent marriage to Matthew Harold Mullen, a man who managed to avoid bureaucracy even more successfully than she did. Like Isma, he was always escaping. As a boy, running away from home, he was arrested for trying to ride a train out of Manhattan. And when Barbara was two and her big sister Shirley was five, he left to catch another train and was never seen again. In the census forms, Isma listed herself as a widow. But decades later, looking through those same forms, I found that Matthew was living in a boarding house just two blocks away from his family throughout their entire childhood. When I tell Barbara this, she struggles to find a reaction, too distant now from a man she never knew to know whether she'll laugh or cry. Isma sewed clothes by night and worked as a telephone operator by day. Whenever she couldn't cope, which was often, she would load her children onto a Greyhound bus and send them to live with her, one of her sisters, slotted into strange families in Texas or Illinois, like pieces of a badly fitted jigsaw puzzle. And even when they were reunited, Isma remained as much of a mystery to the girls as their not actually dead father. They never knew where she'd learned to be such a superb writer, or why she was so adamant that her children take elocution lessons. They never knew when they'd be screamed at or treated to movies. The only thing they did know about their mother, for an absolute fact, was not to ask any questions. When Shirley turned 18, she escaped too, marrying a soldier, moving to Texas, from where she never came back. So there was only Barbara left when, sorry, so there was only Barbara left 
when the police came to call on Christmas Eve 1945 to tell her that Isma had burned to death on the top floor of a big house in Long Island. The autopsy was perfunctory, the funeral hurried. One day Isma was there, the next gone, and her youngest daughter, aged just 18, was alone. Barbara Mullen looked just like Isma. Wavy dark hair, vast brown eyes, a slender body and heart-shaped face. But Isma could never pretend for the camera. In the few photographs she left, trapped between her two terrified-looking little girls, she only ever, looks, only ever looks furious or impatient or sad. And yet her daughter would build a career on the way her face could change in an instant, could harden with mocking allure or dissolve into fertility, could play couture ice maiden or girl next door. When I ask her, she just says that the camera made her free, that it let her escape, just like Isma had, into another world. Thank you. Thank you ever so much, John Michael O'Sullivan. Actually, I'm going to leave that at the same height. It's easier. I sort of squat slightly, as if I was doing my wedding photos many years ago. I'm going to introduce Marianne Johns. Uh, I don't know a great deal about Marianne. I know she's a budding film director, and she's come here to uh, read from her teenage thriller called A Different World. Let's give a big hand to Marianne Johns. Hello there. Okay. So um, let's let's begin. A different world. Martin felt rather bad leaving his cousin and his best friend behind, but his other closest friend and the girl he was in love with needed him more. Patricia was in some kind of trouble, and he had to somehow find a way to get to her. He walked on in the darkness, feeling the uneven and slippery terrain under his feet and inhaling the unpleasant smell of the coven whilst intermittently calling out, Patricia, Patricia, where are you? Where are you, Patricia? He would shout at the top of his voice, but all he could hear was the echo of his own voice and the trickling of water from the walls of this cold and unpleasant place. Then as he walked on, he could suddenly hear a faint and strange hum coming from the furthest point of the cave. Martin shone his torch forward now, instead of angling it right in front of him, to avoid slipping on the many slimy stones under his feet. As he was getting closer to the source of the hum, he could see that the torchlight picked up another entrance. It was a dark hole shaped like an outline of a four- or a five-year-old child with its arms stretched out. The entrance was on a downward slope. Martin froze, shocked at what he saw. He now realized that he has been walking solidly for 40 minutes and had to quickly turn back if he didn't want Peter to panic and start looking for help. But then there was Patricia, or rather no trace of her whatsoever. Oh God, why did I ever agree to go along with this? He whispered as he desperately tried to decide what to do. Go back to Peter or carry on and try and find Patricia. Peter glanced at his watch and it was exactly an hour ago since Martin went in. 
Peter was now faced with a dilemma of either honoring his promise to his friend and relative and get some help, now that Martin hadn't made it back in the time specified, or go with his gut instinct and go after him. Gut instinct, while some call it intuition, was a thing that was infallible, his mother used to say, and one should always obey it if one didn't want to come to any harm. This thing kept nagging at Peter to go after his cousin from the moment Martin disappeared in the cave. Now the feeling of uneasiness and a sense of urgency to find him and Patricia, the two closest people in this world, apart from his mother, was great and insistent. Peter may have been rather small for his age, but he was feisty, and decisive, he knew that the wiser choice was to follow his intuition and go after them. He drew himself slowly to his feet, checking that he still had all the equipment from the earlier and was ready to go, when he suddenly realized he was missing his whistle. Bloody hell, where is it? Hope I haven't left it in the cave the first time I went in, he muttered, oh well. I'll have to do without it. If I left it there, I might be able to find it again. Anyway, time to go. It was his lucky whistle he'd bring along to all his outdoor adventures, an item his father gave him before he left. <clears throat> it was his lucky, oh, sorry. Um, it, um, Peter now flung his small backpack on his left shoulder whilst grabbing a compact oil lamp in his right hand and started walking resolutely towards the cabin. At the entrance, he lit his oil lamp, praying he wasn't too late. Meanwhile, Martin managed to slip on what appeared to be an impossible quantity of slippery pebbles and mud and started traveling on his bottom very fast towards a bizarrely shaped entrance into what appeared to be the next cave. In the end, it was his legs and feet that decided for him and there was no turning back now. He was rather terrified at the fact that he couldn't stop himself from slipping further and further into the darkness. He had no idea whatsoever what to expect when after about a 10-minute ride, he finally came to a complete halt, all muddied up but in one piece. He laboriously scrambled to his feet and took a few steps forward. To his pleasant surprise, the ground now felt very different under his feet. It appeared very soft, almost as if he was walking on the softest moss in the woods. Like his Aunt Janet has behind his, her cottage in a coppice in the Lake District. He could now see strange tiny lights accompanying his own source of light, but the light from his torch appeared too clumsy by comparison. Whereas the flickering lights that were all around him now appeared to be made up of myriad different shimmering colors. The smell was gone too and seemed to have been replaced with something like freshly baked bread. Martin was amazed at the change. The new aroma made him feel hungry, uh, rather hungry. After a while, as his eyes adjusted, he started recognizing the silhouettes of tall trees all around him and structures that appeared to be large bushes and tiny cottages. He could hardly believe his eyes. This was another world, far away from the dark and stinky, slippery cave. But suddenly, he could hear a very high-pitched sound coming from behind and something whizzing through the air at a very high velocity. He then felt something hitting him in the back of the head. Then there was complete darkness, and Martin lay motionless on the floor, his torch still switched on and rolling beside him. The end.
Big thank you to Marianne Johns there. So it's with particular pleasure that I introduce our next author, uh, Zelda Riando, who's one of the organisers of the Brixton Book Jam. Um, and it's been hugely encouraging to me to actually finish some of the works that I've started and just left languishing over the years, as one does. Um, which I really appreciate that encouragement, because you don't get that much uh, coming from a proper South London background as I do. So, uh, Zelda, she's written Kappa Scripti, a book which I found unable to hang on to for any amount of time. I, I read it in just over a day, and then my son Thomas has uh, purloined it. He's over the back there. I don't know who's got it now, but uh, uh, I don't think that it's going to be a, uh, anytime soon I'm getting that book back, because it was just pick it up and read it and put aside what you were going to do until it's done. So, anyway, a big hand, all of you, for Zelda Riando. <laughs> As usual, I have to make it very small. Okay, so uh, I'm in an, an odd position. I've got a book coming out in February, uh, which is over there, Fukushima Dreams, which is a revenge tragedy set in Japan. But actually, as I'm in Brixton, and I'm working on a new book called Good Morning, Mr. Magpie, I thought I'd give you some of that. It's about a woman who does everything the magpies tell her to. Thank you, Jerome. Um, and she sets up this game which people have to play, and it doesn't have a good ending, basically. So you're about to meet Victor, who's one of the lonely old people that she decides to play her game with. Victor took the train to Crofton Park and walked down the small high street towards Broccoli and Ladywell Cemetery. The first gate he'd come to was locked, so he continued on, keeping the cemetery railings to his right until he came to the main entrance, the gates ajar in invitation. Entering, he was presented with a choice to take the left or the right path. The right path was broad and well cared for. The path on the left was narrow and overgrown studded with ancient graves leaning in towards his feet, all entwined with ivy and brambles and bindweed. A blind angel's features worn with time and breasts speckled with lichen turned her head away in grief. Ahead of him, the narrow path stretched out into a darkening vista, trees grown overhead to form a tunnel of green that obscured the sky. If there was any writing on the stones, they were too worn to read. Name dates and epitaphs alike consigned to the dustbin of history or the hungry fingers of Mother Nature. Victor paused for breath. Of course, he'd brought the notebook with him. He kept it on him all the time now. He'd come to enjoy the ritual of recording, mingled with his notes on the movements and behavior of magpies were other jottings. He kept a log of his journeys, following the points of the map. He'd come to realize there was a passion to the places that she sent him to, and that it was connected to the strange symbol and the cutting. 
He knew that she would read the notebook, so he never mentioned her. Oblique references here and there, but certainly never by name. It wouldn't do. Highgate Cemetery, Bunhill Fields, Walthamstow, West Norwood, Old Barnes, Camberwell, Brockley and Ladywell. What was her purpose in sending him to these places? Cemeteries all, to the east, the west, the south, the north of this great city. He'd forgotten the scale of it until he'd started making these journeys. The thousands upon millions of dwellings, the way the train cuttings bisected the denseness of it the many and varied people that formed villages and tribes within the vastness of the city that was never still. But here, amidst the graves where they came to their final sleep, were rotted and were eaten by worms, depending on what you believed. Here, there was some peace. He came to a bench and decided to sit a while. After all, he was a kind of bird spotter and had an idea that you never spotted them on the move. Bird watchers hide in the shadows and keep still and silent. Not a soul was around. A light breeze rustled the leaves above his head. A squirrel ran down a tree trunk and across the path, never glancing at him. He made himself even more still. Sunlight dappled down through the leaves and played tricks with his eyes. He closed them, felt the cemetery about him, felt the warm air brushing his cheeks, the time-worn wood of the bench beneath his fingertips, wondered what he was doing there. And then he heard it, the scold of a magpie. The sound was unmistakable. He opened his eyes and they were there, perched on the tilted stones, astride the path, one almost at his feet, six of them, six is hell. Eva had told him to look for a hollow tree in the new part of the cemetery, next to the allotments. It seemed a very public place to hide a secret. In plain view of both people visiting the graves of loved ones and gardeners digging over their potatoes, he supposed that they must have other things on their minds. His own parents were buried far away. He hadn't visited them for many years. They'd passed away within a short time of each other, as if they couldn't bear to be apart, and he was left alone. He came to the end of the old part of the cemetery and found the playing fields edged with a thin strip of playground fenced off and inhabited by shrieking children. Here, the grass was shorn, and the graves marked che marched cheek by jowl up the slope, the most recent not yet capped with stones. A single giant weeping willow broke the monotony. Victor stopped to rest. He looked around for a bench, but there were none just a low ha-ha running along the edge of the burial plots, and he couldn't quite bring himself to sit there. He paused a while and leant on his stick. He could see another big tree up ahead, and as he approached it, a gap opened up in the fence to his left, 
through which you could see the allotments that Eva had mentioned. That must be the one. There was the trunk, and within it, a dark, shaded hollow. Reaching it, he could see that time, woodworm, or rot had eaten the whole inside out. He peered down inside, but couldn't see into the shadowed depths. There was nothing for it but to reach his hand in. As he felt around inside, he discovered a section where the rot had left a kind of shelf, and on it, his questing fingers touched a small package. He felt his heart contract and looked around to see if anyone was watching. A lone woman stood before a grave several hundred feet away, her back to him in an attitude of grief. His fingers clenched around the package. Without looking at it, he slipped it into his pocket and walked on. Thank you very much. Zelda Riando. And although Zelda has admitted she didn't bring any copies of her books to sale tonight, which was uh, an omission, but yeah, we'll get there. I do want to uh, stress that many of the authors have actually brought on their, brought on their books for you all to buy, which is just uh, being manned just at the back here. And I think some of them are actually... Uh, uh, presented in a slightly uh, cheaper price for us all, which is just lovely. So, uh, yeah, please do visit the bookshop. Um, our next artist, or author, is John Newman, who's uh, presenting uh, a, a book called Death on the Brighton Road, something that's quite fascinating to any South London badass. Um, it's an account of a, a recent nine-mile journey along the old coach road between Kenning and South Croydon. It contrasts the present-day street, streetscape with the history and associations of the long-forgotten execution sites that once dominated this route out of London, at Kennington, Brixton, Thornton Heath, and at Smitham Bottom. In the 18th century, these were all the locations of gallows and gibbets where people were hung. David Weston's accompanying pen and ink and watercolour illustrations capture the same locations today. So, John Newman, big hand, please. Hello, um, let me just adjust this. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, yeah, uh, this is a book about, this is a book called Death on the Brighton Road. Uh, it's not quite as uh, grand a scope as that title might suggest. It is just a, a 10 mile ride from uh, Kennington to uh, Croydon. It's, uh, it's a bike ride I did with my mate Dave Weston, cartographer and artist who's contributed to the book published uh, in June this year by Tomasis, and there's copies at the back if you uh, like the sound of it. Um, I guess in part it's a, it's, it's a road book inspired in a way by the kind of 18th century roadmaps of journeys along coach roads. It's a, it's a kind of narrative of uh, this journey that we took and uh, it's, it's also a kind of meditation on, um, it's a meditation on 18th century capital punishment but it's also a kind of a meditation on uh, uh, how even in such a kind of massively transformed landscape in South London, uh, there are still things there in plain sight that we, we choose to forget about or ignore, uh, of which probably the, uh, 
the best example is uh, St. Mark's Church in Kennington built on the, uh, the site of the, uh, the Surrey Gallows where for the previous 200 years people had been burned and executed uh, and it is now an Anglican place of worship. Okay, let us begin. Um, I'm picking up just as we, just as we uh, flog our way to the top of Brixton Hill on two rather elderly bikes. Now we're back on the route south where just beyond Brixton prison walls, at the crest of Brixton Hill by Morrish Road stood the four mile stone. It was here in 1723 that a footpad, Jack Gutteridge, ambushed a travelling cart, stuck a pistol in the driver's mouth and then blew the man's face off. He was hanged at Kennington the following year for his crime and his body was brought back here to be hung in chains on a gibbet in order to mark the site of his particular atrocity. The bodies of other felons hanged at Kennington would be displayed on the same gibbet in later years, but Gutteridge was the first, and his especial notoriety endured so that the spot was only ever known as Jack Gutteridge's gate. Its location at the summit of Brixton Hill is tantalizing in the way that it links back to a much earlier association. For here too, predating the Four Mile Stone, had stood the Brixie Starn, an Anglo-Saxon landmarker, which went on to give its name to Brixton 100, one of those ancient administrative sub-districts of the county of Surrey, and from which Brixton, uh, as the suburb, is a, a relatively recent descendant built by 19th century house builders. It was never a historic place of settlement. Instead, the empty summit of Brixton Hill provided a visible geographical midpoint around which various parishes could conveniently be grouped. In pre-medieval times, this stan would have probably been the location for the meeting of the Hundredal Court. And elsewhere, at other identified such meeting places as a strong correlation between the archeological finds of Anglo-Saxon execution burials and the sighting of medieval gallows. No such evidence has been uncovered yet here on Brixton Hill for such a thing, but it remains a likely location. So, did an unconscious trace memory of Brixistan's earlier history and purpose inform the sighting of Guttridge's gibbet? As we cross over the South Circular opposite the Crown and Scepter, there's a ghost bike, painted white and chained up to the railings, a fleeting memorial to the victim of a later, more random execution. The architecture becomes younger as we move on out. Despite all the demolitions and interjections, Brixton Road still has a sense of itself as a Regency suburb. Brixton Hill is more confused. Streatham, late Victorian, bleeding into Edwardian. Descending the brick-faced canyon of the high road on a bike is a passage engineered with danger, and any notion of lingering along the roadway has been severely discouraged. Back in Brixton, the stoners, the insane, and the megaphone evangelists were ambling across the center of the road by the market and shouting at the cars. But here, the weight of traffic and the central barrier crossable only at the gap between the railings and the fortified wall of planting deter all but the self-sacrificial. As a townscape, its signatures of flatness 
and height. The stuck-on frontages have little or no depth, and there is a uniformity of street line with no niches or refuge. At the corners of each side turning off this high, high road stand yet taller and more ornamental buildings, topped off with wedding cake pillars and arcaded onion domes. They feel like stage-set gateways that might just open onto some glimpse of the Orient, an expectation that quickly falters as the eye drops from their fiance heights to the bright plastic fascias of the chicken joints and the sari shops beneath. As we cycle on past and glance down, their vistas offer nothing more magical than repeating terraces of Edwardian red brick decency marching tidily away. Further along the high road, we pause opposite a triptych of buildings. The old ice rink, mauve and pink at the front, peeling to an off-white along its sides. A carpet warehouse with its multicolored rolls like giant sticks of sugar candy. And between them, Streatham's derelict baths and assembly rooms. Its municipal grandeur masked behind block-boarded eyes and a padlocked and pillared mouth that can neither see nor speak of evil. Together, the three of them have that numb and condemned look. The local historians and the heritage organizations have been casting dice for their clothes, competing for fragments of stained glass, pleading for foundation stones to be reincorporated in the walls of new car parks. A local antiquarian has already secreted one memorial plaque into his front garden. And, it is whispered, the rink's ice-making machinery may now go to the Science Museum. Tesco, the 21st century hangman, awaits the completion of these scrabbled obsequies and payment for his services. Dave is scowling at the view from across the road, camera fallen awry in one hand, fag in the other. The light has gone, and the grey pall behind the sad frontages will not speak to him. He insists that we wait for the sky to change. The buses and traffic grind by unnoticing as he paces, mutters, turns and faces back waiting for a Turner or a David Cox to lean across and vein the banked cloud with their gold and cornelian pencils. Finally, something creaks open, and the face space fills briefly with light. He kills the cigarette, screws the camera to his eye, half crouching as he shoots, recalibrates, and shoots again, trying to pin the shadow lines. Thank you very much, John Newman. Yeah. I should have given you pre-warning, but we're going to have an interval now for 10 to 15. 
This is my big smile moment. Yeah, thank you very much for your patience and uh, I hope you enjoyed the interval. Did anyone get any food? Mmm, oh. They do do very good food at the Hootenanny, I, I'll have to remind you. No one's pumping me for this, I've actually yet here. It's actually very good. Um. Thank you, brother. I'm going to introduce uh, another author called James Benmore, and <laughs> he's the author of the Dodger series, a trilogy of novels about the continuing story of Arthur Dodger, Artful Dodger, rather, from Oliver Twist. Dodger, Dodger of the Dials, and Dodger of the Revolution. And they're all published by Quirkus? I don't know about any of you. Yeah, is it? Okay, nice one. He is writer-in-residence, and I'm going to add this because it's important, at Gads Hill School, former home of Charles Dickens, and has had short fiction published in anthologies such as The Fiction Desk and The Sand Spout. He's currently working on a new crime novel called Ask for Mercy. So, can you all give a big book jam welcome for James Benmore? Thank you very much. Right. Yes. Not that tall. <laughs> Just go like that, yeah? Okay. Thank you very much. Right. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be back at Brixton Book Jam. Um, yeah, my books are about the Artful Dodger from Oliver Twist. There's three of them. The first one is set five years after the events of Oliver Twist. But, however, the passage I'm going to read for you now is a memory scene where Dodger is uh, thinking back to a sage piece of advice he once received from an old friend. Chapter 29, The Dancing Mutineer, containing the lesson of the story, the lesson of every story. It was Fagin who first told me of the dreadful history of the dancing mutineer. When I was a small kinchin, what had just come to live in Saffron Hill he told all of us boys the story of it before bed and why it was a place where thieves was too scared to go. It was on one of those nights when we was all too excitable to sleep on account of the great thieving adventures we had got up to during the day. And we would have been stamping, scrapping, shouting and making all manner of mischief above the room where he slept. He poked his head up into that attic room and told us that it was far too late for fun and games if we was to be up and out first thing tomorrow. Early birds, my dears, he would say, pointing towards the jack door I had carved into the wooden beam from where the lantern hung. Early birds, we boys, who loved it whenever he would come up to say goodnight to us, pleaded with him then to tell us one of his frightening stories and promised we would sleep all the softer for it afterwards. Fagin, who never needed much persuasion to spin out another cautionary tale, then climbed the rest of his bony self into our attic and made us get in our beds before he continued. Should I tell you, my dears, more of the terrible Baron Beazle? Fagin cackled once, he had, once we had settled ourselves and he had positioned himself under the one lamp for full effect. Or, as he is better known, the drowning judge. After making us promise that we had steel enough to listen to this story of a hanger of seafaring thieves, he continued to tell us about the heroic Magnus Craft, who had fallen into the clutches of the Navy and had been brought home to England to face justice. 
Captain Craft, Fagin told us, was a fine pirate, and he and his crew had plundered their way across the South China Seas like champions. They had buried so much treasure under the earth of tropical islands that the greedy British Empire decided they wanted it for themselves and would not rest until they had found it. Craft was clever, though, and spent years dodging his pursuers with his crew of hearty young pirates, many of them boys as young and as fine as yourselves. But, and here is where the story turns sour, he was led into a trap by a man he once trusted, his own midshipman, what had been paid by the Navy to betray the good captain. He had been peached upon, my boys, by one of his own. Now, what do we all think to that? A chorus of disapproving voices rang out as we all clambered over the others to describe what bloody vengeance we would each carry out on anyone foolish enough to play such games among our little crew. Fagin grinned with pride and continued. Very good, my dears, that's the spirit. Now, Captain Craft was taken back to London and found himself up in front of the Admiralty Court, presided over by the cruelest man in the land, the black-hearted Baron Beazel. Some of the younger boys pulled up their blankets at the mention of this man we had already heard so many bad things about. Beazel wanted to know where the captain had buried all his treasure, but Craft, being a brave pirate who only cared about the fortune of his crew, all still free upon the ocean waves, refused to answer him. So Beazel decided that a common hanging was too good for Craft. Instead, he had him taken. There was a long pause before Fagin made a leap towards us in his scariest voice. To the drowning chamber. We boys all cried out in mock terror, and Fagin chuckled at us before going on to explain how this chamber worked. The chamber is the cellar of a pub, my dears, but this is no friendly establishment like the Three Cripples. Oh, dear me, no. This pub is the Dancing Mutineer, a place feared by everyone in our profession, and with good reason, too. It still stands to this day on the bank of the Thames near Execution Point, but the way in which the condemned men meet their doom when sent to the mutineer is not always by way of the noose. It is a much slower and more painful death. When the tide is low, they are taken down into the dark steps of the cellar and chained to the walls where they are left, but not before their executioners have opened up the tiny sluice gates that face the river. As the tide comes in, the water rises, filling the chamber. Poor Craft was left there to scream out his lungs as the water poured in and rose and rose up to his chin. Chained to other walls was the skeletons of other pirates who, like him, had fallen foul of the Baron. Fagin stood then, as tall as he could, and snuffed out the lantern light. Light still beamed up from the trap he had climbed up through, and he crawled back towards it. Did he survive, or did he perish, my dears? How would you like to hear that the story ended? He had about his person a small implement with which he used to pick his locks, I suggested. Nah, he was rescued, said Charlie Bates, by a woman what loves him. By his crew, said Georgie Blookers. They blew open the river wall with dynamite and stole him away. He drowned, said Jem White like a rat. The only part of Fagin still seen in the attic now was his head, and the light from below illuminated his red hair, making him look like something from a Bible picture book. 
His left arm reached over to the trap door, ready to shut it after himself. All fine ideas, boys, all fine ideas. Any one of you could be the next Edward Bulwood-Lytton with fine ideas like that. So what happened? asked Mouse Flynn. Did he live or did he die? The thing is, said Fagin, as if telling us a terrible secret, it don't matter how it ends. How it ends ain't the lesson of the story. The lesson of the story, the lesson of every story is these three little words. He raised a finger and tapped the air with each one. Don't get caught. And then he pulled the trap door over himself and left us with darkness and dreams. Ladies and gentlemen, a big hand for James Benmore. Our next writer uh, is fairly renowned in this area, um, though not coming from here. He's a Scottish author, living in London. He's the author of such novels as Lonely Werewolf Girl, The Good Fairies of New York, and Susie Led Zeppelin and Me. He also wrote the Thraxis series under the name of Martin Scott, for which he won the World Fantasy Award in 2000. I'm introducing Martin Miller, and he's going to read from his new book, Super Cute Futures, which will be out in July. So this is a first for Martin Miller. Big, big hand. Big, big hand for Martin Miller. Uh, okay. ah, sorry, I wasn't quite ready there. So, um, I'm a bit between books just now, but my new book is finished. It won't be out till July, so that's a little while away, but um, I thought I'd read a bit from it anyway. <coughs> It's called Super Cute Futures, and it's inspired by my liking for manga, really. I've been trying to write something manga-inspired for quite a while, so this is it. And this is, just, this is just an introduction to the Super Cute and um, their show and some possible problems they might have in the, have in the future. It was almost time for the Supercute show, flagship of the gigantic global corporation that was Supercute Enterprises. Founded a long time ago by two young teenage girls in a bedroom in London, with only an iPhone and a collection of their favorite cuddly toys. Mox and Mitsu reclined patiently in their makeup chairs, as four tiny drones hovered in front of them, applying the finishing touches to their cosmetics and the final tweaks to their hair. Sachi's voice sounded in the dressing room. Three minutes, ladies. On stage, presenter Bear strode out to welcome the audience, those watching around the world, and those here in supercute space. Is everyone ready for the supercute girls? The audience screamed that yes, they were. Mitsu looked down at her feet. She was wearing a delicate pair of embroidered slippers. She spoke one word, platform. Her slippers transformed, the thin soles extending by 12 centimeters, the uppers stretching over her ankles, till she wore the platforms favored by Supercute, 
They were striking, distinctive, and rather impractical, unless, like Mox and Mitsu, you'd had a lot of practice. Mox did the same, transforming her shoes. Reflections, said Mitsu. A holographic, a holographic duplicate of each girl popped into existence in front of them, rotating slowly. They studied their appearance. As the cutest, most kawaii young women in the world, they never let down their audience. You look fantastic, Mitsu. So do you. They heard the sound of their theme tune, Destination Super Cute. It was loud, raucous, more so than might have been expected from their appearance. But they were idiosyncratic in that way, and always had been. The super cute show had not developed from the judgments, opinions, and marketing requirements of a corporate board. It had developed from the two girls' individual tastes and their brilliance at relating to the audience. Two uniformed security guards escorted them towards the set. Mox and Mitsu strode along purposefully, but when they neared the stage, their gait changed. So as they appeared in front of the audience, there was a hint of fragility about them, a slight impression of delicacy, which made you think they might need protecting from the harsh world outside. In reality, they were both so comprehensively enhanced with the most advanced biotech available They'd have been unlikely to come to a harm if a truck crashed into them, but that wasn't the image they wanted to project. Their voices changed subtly too, taking on the faint suggestion of a child's lisp, barely noticeable, but there on a sublimal level. Mox and Mitsu spoke 16 languages, and they could produce this effect in all of them. They walked onto a stage that was colorful, cheerful, chaotic, noisy, and above everything else, cute. Colors were bright, never garish. Everywhere you looked, there were characters not, wet, not met in the real world. Tiny chibi fingers scabbering about, smiling cupcakes and friendly strawberries sliding down miniature rainbows into comforting bento boxes. Sleepy kittens lay on plump pink cushions, stars floated overhead, pink and blue, like those on Mox and Mitsu's faces. Mox smiled broadly and waved. Hello, Europe. Hello, Asia. Mitsu waved. Hello, Americas. Hello, Australia. And what's left of Africa? Bring on some Nigerians, muttered Morioka Sanchai in the control room. Six Nigerians, aged 12 or 13, appeared on stage, all dressed in the super cute fan clothes, some wearing the popular super cute medical masks in pink, light blue and white. Everyone entering supercute space seemed to have extraordinary long, thick, brightly colored hair. Most used the supercute big color super V hair package that was an essential item for all fans. While they might not be able to have, in real life, extraordinary hair like Mox and Mitsu, they could in all the fun worlds created by supercute. Mox waved. What have you got on the show tonight, Mitsu? All our favourites. There's a new episode of there's a new episode of Supercute Space Warriors, and we'll be talking to Shanina right afterwards. Shanina Space Warrior was a tremendously popular character. She led her she led her crew through all kinds of adventures in the galaxy. Despite being a fictional character, she was often interviewed in the show. 
and many viewers had long ago forgotten that she wasn't actually real. We have the super cute fashion show, a roundup of every new design in the super cute glam, in the super glam super nails pack, a report from super cute relief mission in Jaipura, and then we'll be giving some tips for how to get through level six of Space Warriors 9, still top of the gaming charts after 36 weeks. And after that, as if from nowhere, a small shower of water sprayed through the air, touching the girls. They laughed as if it were a cheerful surprise. It's Desal Dim Dim, cried Mitsu. <coughs> there was cheering as Desal Dim Dim bounced into view. Desal Dim Dim, the very cute logo of super cute Greenfield, was familiar in most countries around the world. Visual representative of the huge desalinization and environmental restoration business owned by Supercute. Since the multitude of disasters had made the purification of seawater vitally important in every region, Supercute Greenfield had become one of the world's largest companies. Their desalinization plants could be seen on, co on coastlines everywhere. How's life in the world of desalinization, desal? Wonderful. I've purified so much water in Portugal, they've managed to grow some trees. Trees appeared on stage to fantastic applause. And now we're off to Mexico, continued desal. We're going to end their drought. Ms. Mason, Chief Executive Officer of RX Enviro, sat in her boardroom with senior vice presidents, Mr. Hernandez and Mr. Schultz, watching the super cute show. Mr. Hernandez grunted in annoyance. These super cute bitches are not getting their hands on Mexico's water rights. Ms. Mason showed no emotion as she replied. They already have. Once they signed the contract for attack drones, the deal's as good as done. All right. Thank you. That's my introduction to the book. Ladies and gentlemen, Martin Miller. I've actually brought along a few books that Martin did many, many years ago in the hope that I might get a signature in them or some derogatory message. Um, but uh, that aside, Martin Miller, uh, a great local author uh, for Brixton, despite coming from Scotland. We love you, Martin. So the next person I'm going to introduce <laughs> is Sophie Sparham. She's a spoken word artist and sci-fi and fantasy writer based in Derby. Her work has been featured in the People's History Museum and UK Young Artists Festival. She has shared the stage with punk legends such as Crassus Steve Ignorant. And can I just say, like, huge respect to uh, Sophie for being on the stage with Steve Ignorant, because, like, Crass was a big part of my formative years. Um, also with Andy T and the Subhumans. Sophie has also performed at various festivals such as Rebellion Festival, Why Not, and Bearded Festival. Bearded Theory, almost. Please Mind the Gap is Sophie Sparham's debut poetry collection and features a foreword from Benjamin Zephaniah, who said, 
Sophie Sparham has a unique and distinctive voice and has some very important things to say. I am sure she will shine in the years to come and her talent will carry her far. Sophie Sparham, big round of applause, please. the gap between the rich and the poor. Inches apart, but you'll know if you fall. Please mind the gulf, watch the waves overhead. Once you're down there, you drown in singing excuses born and bred. The law is out of order. It hasn't worked for years. And he claims tax, and he claims land, and he claims he don't live here. The buildings are in disrepair. Every mind is closing down. Another every day in another anywhere town. Hey, mate, have you got 20p? I want change. Or time, or sleep, or just an excuse to board a train. I once says, I think you can do anything. But how can you get what I mean? When I dream, when I work, and I work in my dreams. So another day, another dollar, another paper, another pound. Another lonely girl dies in another little town. But the news finished on the weather report. Sunny morning, cloudless skies. And so we rolled down our windows, letting freedom pass on the right. And we yelled at our cities, sticking out our heads. We turned up our music, she turned up dead. Did you know there's four emergency services? Did you know there's life after meth? Did you know the home is not where the heart is when the body's under house arrest? Did you know this door has never been locked? Did you know this is not what it's all about? But I still hear the screams, get me out, get me out. Because when they say that you're nothing, it's hard to get somewhere. And when they call you careless, it's easy not to care. And when they say you're a waste of space, your body's given to the air. Your mind is a conveyor belt, your tits are your taxi fare. But you are more than just the weather report. Don't fear dark skies, however frightening. Because if you're born in a storm, then you are fork lightning. You're the fourth emergency service. Heal yourself, get gone. Somewhere amongst the clouds, I heard a whisper, carry on. I'm Sophie from Derby and that. Yeah, man. Um, so I just wanted to finish on this poem today. Um, it's weird. Normally I've got like loads of papers with me and that, but I've got like a, a compact thing now that they're all in, so I don't have to carry them all around anymore. Um, basically, in life, everyone's got something we want to do, yeah? We've got things that we want to do, dreams we want to do, and people will just be like, oh, don't do that thing. Just carry on, keep doing what you're doing. Never listen to those people. Always do the thing. This is called Not Your 9 to 5. 
I was born into the arms of a one-legged suit, tailored to fit me until I was old. And now every boss that I've ever had is just a child in oversized clothes. And I could be on a bus, I was trapped at the front of a journey without a break. Because the driver said it was quicker, much smoother and slicker, while plan A was too rocky to undertake. And the passengers stretched their toes in unison, the higher up the mountain we drive. I've seen the most breathtaking views in the world, but not once have I stepped outside. And I knew a man who sold solar panels, but never saw the sun. He said, I'm going to climb, climb, climb until my working day is done. He says, I need to do more than just survive. Am I asking for too much? And besides, we have the weekends, and the weekends is enough. So nine becomes five, and five becomes 22, and 22 becomes 365. Gaining figures through the expenditure of hands, even the clockmakers can't sell time. We are pushed to pave roads. Our feet become hard-pressed, and our souls become tough. Yes, we have the weekends, but the weekends will never be enough. Remember, the earth turns quickly, like the pages of a good book that no one has time to take in. And so I'm breaking my spine. I am breaking my spine to let the weight of this story begin. Because I've heard too many shoulda, woulda, couldas. Too many want-it wonders. Too many unsung songs. Too many, if I had my time again. If I had my time again. If I had my time again, I would right every wrong. And I know that it's confusing to dream. I've been searching for answers since the day that I was born. And like night owls on Saturday mornings, we weren't prepared for these new dawns. But don't fear the sun. Get burnt, learn and know that paved roads are safe to walk, but no flowers grow. Those that don't reach the peak can still see the sky. Success means the paths that we choose to explore and not how high we climb. Thanks, have a good evening. Sophie Sparham, big hand, big hand. Our next uh, writer-up is called Damon L. Wakes. Uh, Damon holds an MA in Creative and Critical Writing from the University of Winchester and 10 Little Astronauts, the novella he submitted as the final project for that course, has since been accepted for publication by Unbound. He writes everything from humour to horror and produces a brand new work of flash fiction every day during July each year. I understand this is for sale at our wonderful bookstall at the back. So, <laughs> can I get you to give a big, big uh, welcome to Damon Ilwakes. Hi, uh, yeah, as you've just heard, um, this book is currently with Unbound. Uh, 
I'll tell you a little bit about that afterwards, but for now, I'll just jump into the first chapter, which is titled 11. Um, the reason I think will become apparent. <clears throat> Even before the alarm began to sound, Laura knew in his gut that something was wrong. It was only when he pushed open the hatch of the suspension tank and a few drops of thick cryonic fluid drifted out into the pitch black hallway that he realized what it was. There was no gravity. That was why his stomach churned. The world, the tiny pool of light spilling from his tank, seemed to swirl. Owen, lights! The computer gave no response. Owen, turn on the lights. Nothing. Owen! But there was something else now, beyond the cold tank and the dark hallway. Something that no crewman wanted to encounter anywhere, let alone 10 trillion kilometers beyond Earth orbit. It was the smell of burning plastic. Laura hauled himself out of the tank and clawed for the rack of emergency supplies. Even the smallest fire could render the air unbreathable very quickly. Finally managing to find a torch, he tore it from its bracket and pumped the dynamo. A feeble light flickered into life. Without gravity, every direction was down. Away from the wall of suspension tanks and handrails, the darkness of the hallway yawned like an endless chasm. Gradually, the smell of scorched plastic grew stronger. The end of the passage loomed in the torchlight, and Bloor pulled himself hand over hand towards the steel door of Computing Hub 5. He heaved it open, and the torch picked out a blizzard of extinguisher foam. Someone else was already here. Sweeping the torch across the room, he spotted a figure in the far corner, clutching an extinguisher, but the man hung motionless in the air. A ball of blood was forming on his back, held by surface tension to the axe planted between his ribs. In the event of an emergency, the ship defrosts 10 crew members. Bloor wheeled round to see a black-haired man and a small group behind him, clinging to the handrails at the doorway to the next cryonic bay. With you and your friend over there, the man continued, gesturing to the corpse. I make that 11. So as you might have guessed from the title and the uh, axe murder in the, the first page, uh, the book is a sci-fi reimagining of Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. Um, if anyone was at the International Agatha Christie Festival in September, I was actually doing a, a talk on it there. Um, it's currently funding with Unbound, which uh, if you haven't heard about it, probably from Zelda, um, they, uh, they crowdfund books. Um, what they do is they put the book online um, initially, so that people can get behind it if they want. And uh, in my case, they sprang for a video filmed on board a submarine to kind of explain the basic um, idea. So do, do have a watch of that. I've got leaflets scattered around. You can find the, the webpage on that. But basically, um, I have until Christmas to fund it. It is currently on 51%. Um, so it is over halfway. I would be devastated if it didn't get the rest of the way. No pressure. Um, but yes, if it sounds like your kind of thing, uh, now is your chance to actually turn it into a book distributed by Penguin Random House that you can pick up in any bookshop, and your name will be in the back to show that you are one of the people who actually made it happen. So please, uh, if it sounds like your kind of thing, I've got an email sign-up sheet at the back. I've got tons of leaflets and things with me. I am happy to chat about it. So thank you.
big uh, round of applause for Damon there. So our next uh, performer, artist, author, is Mark Bosher. And do I have the, the things to hand? No. Mark Bosher, are you here? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, come up on. I have to apologise for my lack of comparing skills here. Mark, I'm going to just let you go for it, yeah? A, a thousand apologies. Clearly not very noteworthy. Um, so my name is Mark Bauscher. Um, I'm a writer. I'm also a filmmaker. In fact, Unbound's been mentioned a lot tonight, and I actually have made something like 140 of the author videos. Uh, for Unbound, so uh, including Casper Adiman, who is there cheering me with the mad coloured hair in the front. Um, so, yeah, um, same as with Damon, if you are interested in my book, I hope you are interested in both of our books, come up and speak to me. I will take your email address and send you a link, and then it's up to you if you want to get behind it. And my book is called The Boy Who Stole Time. And The Boy Who Stole Time is all about a young boy whose mother is dying and he does a deal with this devil-like creature to collect the essence of time itself to try and save him and I'm to try and save her um, and this chapter I'm going to read is chapter three and this is the backstory the fairy tale that the devil-like creature tells Krish our young hero um, to explain how the essence of time came about chapter three the harvest of time Somewhere out there, there were other worlds. Worlds just like ours, but at the same time, altogether different. In one world was the city of Batakrit. Batakrit was at the edge of a mighty desert, halfway down a canyon, suspended by ropes and canvases tied to the opposing rock faces. The people lived simple, contented lives in the warm sunshine until the reign of the Empress Ben-Huin. The Empress Ben-Huin was a beautiful woman of silky smooth olive skin with long cascading curls of pitch black hair reaching all the way down to her hips. But she was a cruel woman. The Empress feared nothing more than growing old and grey, so forced all the most skilled physicians and magicians of Bartakrit to come up with a solution to keep her youthful forevermore. And so they did. They coated a fragment of helmstone in crushed leaves from an evergreen tree that grew in the eastern valleys, mixed together with the blood of a newborn child and hung there above the empress's bed. The helmstone channeled the youth of the people into the empress. From 999 years, babies were born old and shriveled, their first hairs being gray, and they stayed old and decrepit throughout their miserable lives, while the empress remained young and beautiful the helmstone glowing over her bed of silken sheets. Some saw so many of the gorgeous, she saw so many of the gorgeous noble women she had once envied grow old and wrinkled and die. She cared not. She would outlive the stars themselves and be twice as beautiful. But as the light ebbed over the land on the dawn of the first day of the thousandth year, the people of Bartakrit awoke and found themselves restored to their proper ages. No one alive at that time had ever seen young skin, except on the Empress Ben-Huin, who now found she had one grey hair stretching from her head to her hips, 
and one wrinkle on her soft olive skin. The physicians and magicians were locked in a room for 19 days with nothing more than a hunk of stale bread and a goblet of sour wine, which the empress had spat out in disgust at a banquet three nights before, until they found another solution. The physicians and magicians realized that they couldn't keep her young forever unless they gave her more time. They hatched a plan to harvest time itself, grind it up, and turn it into, the dra into a draft which the empress could swallow in one gulp. The physicians and magicians knocked on the door and the empress let them out and within hours the harvest began. Time, of course, was not really a crop like the ones the people of Bartakrit grew in woven baskets hanging over the sides of the city. So the physicians and magicians proposed to rid the city of time altogether by gathering up all timekeeping devices and grinding them into a powder. A battalion of the Empress Benhuin's most loyal guards tore through the city, seizing every clock, sundial, and hourglass, and every egg timer they could lay their hands on. Each device was then ground into a fine powder, and a quantity of that powder was left to boil in a large vat of milk and licorice for seven whole days. The potion was prepared, and the Empress took her finest golden goblet and drank a generous draught. Immediately, a streak of grey ran down a second hair, and the physicians and magicians found themselves locked up in a room, again, this time with only a crust of mouldy bread and a thimble full of steam. They knew something was missing from their potion, but what? Kalrika Mavora, the oldest of the physicians, spoke of a herb she knew that grew in the shadow of a large sundial at the top of the north side of the canyon. The physicians and magicians rapped on the door, the empress let them out, and they sped past her to the North Canyon. The herb, Uraka, meaning the shadow plant, had barely survived in the unseasonably hot summer, but one crop was left. The concoction was brewed again, this time for 14 days while the empress paced her room impatiently. Finally, it was ready. The empress, Ben Huin, took the potion and waited. She felt no different. And then she watched as the gray hairs faded to black and she rubbed that accursed wrinkle for a few moments until her skin was silky smooth once more. The Empress Ben Huin was overjoyed, but her happiness would not last long. She immediately threw the physicians and magicians to their deaths at the bottom of the canyon, all except Ravelra, who she kept alive against her will, forcing the potion of time she made her brew down the ancient physician's throne and or, and she cut the tongues out of any soul who breathed a word of the secret recipe, so only she and Mavora knew it. The centuries moved on, but by this time, somehow, there were people who knew about her concoction. The thieves appeared on almost a daily basis to try and steal the powder of time, which she kept in her bedchamber at the center of the palace. Bloody hell, I've lost place. Some looked like no kind of person she, or indeed anyone in Bartakrit, had ever encountered before, with clothes and skin colors no one had ever seen in the whole world. But their world was not our world. It was a different world, and there were many more worlds out there other than the Empress Ben Huin's and ours. The harvest of time was a unique event in all of existence, and this caused holes to be ripped between worlds. The people for 
People were coming from many different worlds to steal what the Empress called her Mithali, the sands of time. These time thieves had gathered an army to force their way into the Empress's palace. There was only one thief, Evia, who fought her way through a hundred thousand worlds to reach Spartacrit, who made it into the Empress's bedchamber. Evia found the Empress clutching the final sack of Mithali. She threatened the Empress with her blade, but she would not let go. Evia tore the sack from the Empress's grasp. The very moment the sack left her grip, the Empress fell to the floor and breathed no more. Evia vanished, never to be seen again. Only a handful of people in Bartakrit had information on the current whereabouts of the final sack of Mithali. One claiming to be the heir to the Empress's throne, left Bartakrit never to return, and so the tale goes, is still searching for the Mithali. As for the Empress herself, she got her wish. To this day, her body lies in the glass case at the center of the city, remaining young and beautiful for all time. Thank you. If you're interested, do come and speak to me later, and I will send you um, a link to the book, The Boy Who Stole Time. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Bowsher. And although my mind went blank just as I was introducing him, there is a few things that I have to say about the guy because, like, it'd be remiss of me if I didn't. Um, from what I know, he recently wrote and directed the pilot episode for a sitcom based on his previous career in film marketing entitled It's All Lies. <laughs> he isn't married and doesn't live in Surrey, but what did once climb a mountain dressed as Peter Pan. So, Mark Bowsher, big hand for. Thank you. Sarah Jane Stratford, who will be reading from Radio Girls her new novel. That's fine. Hi, I'm me. Um, this book is called Radio Girls. It came out last year. And it's about some of the real women who founded, were part of the founding members of the BBC in the 1920s. And namely, um, Hilda Matheson, who was the first director of talks. So in this scene, a fictional character, Maisie Musgrave, a very nervous Canadian, um, is starting her first day on the job, and it's not going well, and this is her first time meeting Hilda, and she doesn't yet know the name of the director of, the of talks, so. Her reward at last, a crisp, polished sign on a door, glistening with newness, director of talks, H. Matheson. She took a deep breath, rehearsing an apology as she crept to the office. The door was ajar. Macy peered in and saw a severely tidy desk. There seemed to be a building block in the in-tray, but as Maisie drew closer, she realized it was only correspondence stacked so meticulously as to appear smooth. A half-written letter in a rather scrawly hand lay on the blotter. A pile of books, a green leather diary. Maisie chewed her lip as she studied the desk, wondering where to lay her burden. Hello, is it anything urgent? 
Maisie shrieked and the papers went flying again. She whirled to see a woman sitting on the floor by the fireplace, smiling up at her. Are you off your nuts, Maisie cried, surprising herself both by the decidedly American expression she hadn't realized she'd ever known, and the volume of her speech, which showed that she'd learned one thing from her actress mother, how to project to the upper balcony. Steady now, the woman advised, her smile broadening. Carry on like that and you'll be part of the transmission. Indeed, they'd hardly need the tower. The head of a grim-faced young man in tortoise-shell glasses slithered around the door and glared at Maisie. What was all that ruckus? It's not a mouse, is it? Hardly, the woman on the floor responded, her gaze boring into Maisie. So what's the matter with you, the man scolded Maisie. Pick those up. Don't you know how to deliver things? I've always said girls have no place working in... Now, Mr. Fielden, do calm down. You're in danger of being ridiculous, the woman chided. The young lady was simply startled by my presence, and you must agree I am astonishing. Fielden's thin lip, unimproved by his haphazard mustache, curled. Maisie could feel how much he longed to keep scolding her. I shall handle this, the woman concluded. Her voice was pleasant, cheerful, but rang with an absolute command that would not be countered. Fielden nodded obediently and his head slid back around the door. The woman chuckled. Maisie couldn't understand her ease. If she had been caught lounging on an office floor, not that she would ever contemplate such an action, she'd be lucky to retrieve her hat and coat before being shown the door. But this woman was utterly unruffled. She took a luxurious sip of tea, set her cup on a lacquered tray, and swung to her feet with an almost acrobatic leap. Now then, what were you delivering? Er, Maisie bent to gather the papers, now far beyond hopeless and well into disaster. Why didn't I just look for work picking potatoes? The woman helped her up, and Maisie balanced the papers on the desk. Are, are you, I, um, <laughs> I, I thought the director of talks didn't have a secretary, Maisie said, her hands still shifting through the papers to hide their trembling. And, and not as such, no. And that's something that badly needs rectifying, came the jaunty reply. Maisie had the uneasy sense of being read from the inside out, despite the placid sweetness of the huge blue eyes. The woman was rather lovely, with soft blonde hair cut into a wavy bob, and an elegant figure shown to advantage in a practical and obviously bespoke tweed suit. Her skin was the pink and white of first bloom, but Maisie felt sure she was in her 30s. It was just something about her bearing. This was a woman who had seen and done things. And now she had seen the inter-office envelope addressed to the director of talks. Ah, she cried, catching it up and opening it. Maisie was galvanized. No, that's for Mr. Matheson, Miss Shields said. Hmm, I know of two Mr. Mathesons and neither are here, the woman grinned. She had the air of an infinitely patient teacher. Maisie had the horrible sense she was being set up for a joke, that any second Cyril, Beanie, Rusty, and all the boys were going to swarm around the door and laugh at her. Then the story would fly through the whole of Savoy Hill and follow her wherever she went, even if she ran to, fled to deepest Saskatchewan. You, 
Are you the director of talks? Maisie whispered, hoping everyone waiting to laugh wouldn't hear. I am, the woman announced with a pleased nod. Hilda Matheson, miss. And you are? Maisie Musgrave, aha. Hilda pumped Maisie's hand, her eyes snapping with delight. My new secretary, or as much as Mr. Reith and Miss Shields are willing to spare you, thus far. Marvelous. Now, don't mind me sitting on the floor by the fire. It's a grand way to think and just one of my quirks. Oh, I, I, I didn't mean to. You most certainly did, and don't you apologize. It was glorious, Hilda laughed. Her musical laugh was very unlike Beanie's. It was boisterous, rolling, and deep. Maisie found it a touch alarming. I expect you thought I was a secretary, she went on, not waiting for Maisie's embarrassed nod. Wouldn't I get into the hottest water for such impropriety? Well, she added, eyes twinkling in an unsettling roguishness, I might anyway at that. But it is chilly, and one must stay warm. I appreciate your looking after me, Miss Musgrave, though I might suggest in future moderating your tone. Just a nip. Maisie could hear an echo of that laugh. Of course, Miss Matheson, she whispered. That's going to the other extreme. But quite all right. It's always useful to try a few possibilities. Else, how can you be sure what's right? I, I, I don't know, Miss Matheson. Well, we try, try again. Now, are all these for talks as well? She, she asked, indicating the folders. Er, yes, but I'm afraid... Maisie squeezed her eyes shut, both to avoid seeing this exacting woman too closely and to stop the tears from spilling more freely than the papers. Oh, Miss Matheson, I'm so sorry, but, but, but I'd already dropped them e even before now. They've all got to be put back together, and, and, and I don't know, folders dropped twice, and on your first morning, no less. <laughs> that is a feat. You don't make a habit of tossing paper thither and yon, do you? Oh, no, no, I, I was... Well, I ran into a tuba. Ugh. Occupational hazard in, in Savoy Hill. But you're all right? Good. Now, let's have at these papers and see how quickly they submit to order. Could she possibly be facetious? Maisie thought with yearning of Miss Shields' disapproving candor, which was at least comprehensible. She gazed, fascinated, as Hilda organized the papers. Small, neat hands flying through them, well-manicured, left, left finger brazenly unencumbered by a wedding ring. A silver and enamel Mido watch clamped around her wrist. There, she patted the neat folders with satisfaction. I shall let you in on a little secret I've unearthed, having only been here since September myself. Few of these papers are of the earth-shattering consequences they're considered by some. It's all about what's going to happen, Miss Musgrave, not what's already been and done. Which isn't to say I don't like to keep very, very complete and tidy records. That is something I do expect, along with a strict attentiveness to all that goes forward. But I dare say Miss Reith and Mr. Miss Shields and Mr. Reith wouldn't have approved you if you weren't sharp. At that moment, Maisie had no idea why she'd been approved. Miss Jenkins at the secretarial school always withheld from giving her full marks. You're the most technically proficient and capable, Miss Musgrave, but the best secretaries have brio, dear. 
Does anyone ever use the word dear when they aren't insulting you? Maisie was grateful to Miss Matheson, who in any case was a good deal more pleasant than Miss Shields, but now, the emergency over, she felt deflated. She'd been expecting a man, a clever, charming, well-spoken man who would intimidate and dazzle her. Under his influence, she would learn to behave in such a way that would allow a man's genius to flourish. Such skills would hopefully attract another clever and exciting man, dark blue eyes and freckles came to mind, who might be enticed to become her husband. But a woman, as director of talks, that seemed to be taking the BBC's audacious modernity a bit too far. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Sarah Jane Stratford. Big hand of applause, please. Sarah Jane Stratford. Now, we have another author, Nick Cox, on the uh, author list here. I've not actually met them here tonight, so I'm not entirely sure where they're here. Do we have Nick Cox in the house? I don't think we do. So we're going to be moving swiftly on to uh, our last act of the evening. <laughs> Dominic Canty. Now, Dominic like many of us, was born and grew up in South East London. <laughs> yeah. Big up South London. Why don't we? I mean, yeah, why don't we? Yeah. So Dominic was born and grew up in South East London and has always been interested in entertainment and fiction. Having worked the London stand-up comedy circuit for two years, he turned to fiction and was delighted to be voted Guardian Reader's Recommended Author in 2016. Dead Men Should Know Better is the title of his book, and it introduces Britain's new secret agent, Bristow Trabant. Described by the wonderful South London Press, I mean, I'd love a quote from the South London Press. I mean, forget The Guardian, I mean, come on. Described by the South London Press as a barnstorming, laugh-out-loud bulldozer of a spy thriller from one of London's most exciting new writers. Wouldn't you like write that yourself? Like, I mean, wow. This novel is a headfirst dive into the world of international arms trafficking, which by definition has a dark, mur murky and gritty core, yet the book is flavoured with humour as the characters are introduced. Dominic Canty will read from Dead Men Should Know Better. Dominic Canty! Evening who, Nanny, how we doing? Hey. Okay, um, I'm passionate about espionage as a genre and humour, so I wanted to bring the two together um, and I wanted to introduce a new uh, secret agent to the world. I think the world can't have enough secret agents at the moment. Um, so here we are, my debut novel, Dead Men Should Know Better, available at the back. Um, it's a comedy spy thriller. And, um, as I say, it introduces Bristow Trabant. The main premise of the book is that um, the world's most notorious arms trafficker, gunboat Charlie Chavez, has suddenly reappeared on the radar in the south of France, and MI6 needs to react quickly 
but they haven't got enough secret agents available, so they pluck Bristow Trabant from the IT department, who, by his own admission, is completely the wrong man for the job, but they say, you're going anyway, and he's not the sort of guy to say no. So they, uh, they call him into the office, and uh, this is basically what happens. Uh, Bristow, I think it's about time you had another holiday. Uh, I've just been away, actually, sir. No, well, we feel that you should go away. Do a bit of surveillance. Do you feel you're up for the job? Um, to be honest, sir, uh, no. Well, tough, because Gumbo is holding a charity fundraising event in Le Club Maritime du Soleil in the south of France, a very upmarket yacht club. The truth is, the event is just a distraction. He's really there to do business with many of his regular clients. So you're booked in at the Hotel Louis Figaro for two nights, and all you've got to do is maintain surveillance. Don't talk to him, don't get into any sort of contact, and remember, whatever you do, don't play him at cards. So Bristow is completely a fish out of water, and he is sent to the south of France, and uh, he's in the Club Maritime Soleil, and he's trying to maintain surveillance, but he doesn't realize there's a tradition that Gunboat, once he's done his business and he's sold his arms to all the terrorists and all the gun runners and all the politicians around the world, he likes to pluck somebody from the audience and challenge them to a game of cards. And it just so happens that it's Bristow's unlucky night. You, you'll do. I'm going to play you at cards, shouted Gunboat. Uh, uh but who, me? said Bristow, looking around. Yes, you, come, come over here now. Trabant was plucked, and he sat down in front of the table. Hey, I'm just going to find my place. <laughs> okay. What, what game of cards would you like to play? You don't have a choice, but you need to play one of them. Trabant looked at the options available and tapped the third option. A large circular table had been covered with a green cloth and placed on the stage with two antique chairs set opposite each other. Bristow Trabant sat on one. The sexy French hostess pushed her way through the hastily assembling crowd, trying to catch Trabant's eye to warn him. She knew that if he beat Gumboat, he would play with his, pay with his life. Gumboat was the worst loser ever, but refusal to play him also carried the same life-terminating consequences. Bristow just had to play badly and let Gumboat win, as countless others had done over the years, and then maybe, just maybe, he would escape with his life. It was the only hope. The room fell deadly silent. Gumboat was now taking his seat, reveling in the hush, bathing in the horror etched upon Trabant's face. Senor, no look so worried, he said to Trabant, leaning forward. Really? Why's that? asked Trabant, clutching the faint glimmer of hope. Why? Simple, because when you're a dead man, you have nothing left to lose. Bristow Trabant's world stopped again. The croupier placed a pack in front of each player. As Monsieur Trabant is the challenger, he shall go first. Wait, shouted Eva, this, this is sexy hostess, reappearing from the far side of the room. Fresh drinks, please. No, the game must start. Trabant, you must turn your first card. He reached forward to the deck of cards in front of him and turned his first card. Queen of Hearts. Gumboat laid his first card beside it. Ace of Clubs. 
Draban followed, and the game quickly gained a breakneck momentum. Seven of diamonds, four of clubs. The crowd stepped closer still, primed with a juicy anticipation of Gunboat's murderous reaction. Six of hearts, ten of spades. Tension rose higher still, now clawing at the ceiling, desperate for release, until Gunboat finally laid down his remaining card. But there were no winners this time. Conversation returned to the room, tinged with a wolf-packed frustration at being robbed of the kill. As the croupier gathered the scattered cards into a pile, Traban eased back in his chair, exhaled his own bluster of tension, and replaced it with a long slug of apple juice. Mmm, delicious, he said. Freshly squeezed apples and crushed ice always hit the spot. But the second game was soon to commence. Gunboat surveyed Trabant with increasing suspicion, then nodded to his two heavies, who instantly moved into position, one by the room's entrance, the other directly behind Bristow Trabant. Deathly silence reclaimed the room as the second game commenced. Four of clubs thrown down aggressively by Gunboat. Six of diamonds. Trabant was warming up. He'd surely impressed the sexy French hostess by winning the game and become hero of the night. Six of spades, nine of hearts, two of spades. The cards were thrown down faster and faster. Gunboat bit his bit harder into his cigar, emitting toxic mumblings under his Panamanian breath, tensing up as he felt the game slipping away. Trabant, stone cold sober, felt sharp. Gunboat threw down the nine of diamonds. As the card slid across the previous one, Trabant quickly released his next. It whistled through the air in slow motion, eventually landing on the table before him. He'd forgotten the warning from MI6. Whatever you do, don't play Gunboat at cards. The moment was getting the better of him. Gunboat's reactions were slow, distracted by a momentary glance to check his memory in place. His eyes returned to the table in horror. The card Bristow Trabant had thrown down had barely settled, yet matched his own card exactly. He went to mouth the word, but was too late. Bristow Trabant was already there, shouting the word that would change history, the course of world affairs, and the word that would start the countdown on his own existence. The word was final. The word was cutting. The word was, and I'm really sorry, but you're going to have to buy the book. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> You've got to keep fiction going. Tune in next week for the... Uh... <laughs> so this is my proud debut novel. It took four years to write. Um... Yeah. <laughs> Boo, get off. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so the first in a series. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, I'll say it's out now available over there. So um, I really hope if anybody buys it, and you will enjoy it. Just to let you know, I've deliberately kept it um, appropriate for adults and teenagers, male and female. So it's clean, um, but, it, I, <laughs> but I wanted that gritty edge. So <laughs> and on that note of cleanliness, I'm going to leave the stage. Thank you very much for your time. And I think, um, I'd just like to say, on behalf of all the... Uh, performers tonight, all the writers and the musicians and so forth, we really appreciate um, Zelda, our fantastic compere, the Hooter Nanny and everybody else involved, so big round of applause to everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good night. Cheers.
Dominic Canty. Big round of applause. Go on, let's give him another welcome hand. Well, Dominic was our last act tonight. Uh, we do have a few thank yous. I hope you've enjoyed yourselves tonight. Without you, the audience, it wouldn't really be worth putting on. Um, we must thank you, the authors who come today, the musicians, all our friends, um, the bar staff who worked so hard. Sharon has been like serving the uh, bookstall like for the entire evening, selling all our good authors' books. Everyone who's made an effort. Zelda Riando, her husband Stuart, who's been organising this for years. I thank you all. I thank you all. Good night. My name's Christian Evans. Good night now. <laughs>